uh, this past week while meeting with uh, the discipleship group of which I am a, a part each week, uh, I explained to the men there that I would be preaching on uh, the fifth chapter of Proverbs, and I explained briefly uh, Proverbs chapter 5, and one of them responded by saying, so you're going to be talking with us about the birds and the bees. Well, in a way, uh, one of the tremendous and practical benefits of God's word is that while it is primarily a story, a narrative, a redemptive story um, of God's pursuit after and his redemption of a people, through that story, our Lord addresses a breadth of practical life matters, uh, subjects such as the purpose of life, uh, the issue of how to deal with pain and suffering. Uh, what does it look like to properly steward the things that God gives to us, our time, money, the gifts that he grants uh, to us? But the scriptures not only address a breadth of topics, it does not shy away uh, from those areas that we might rather avoid, including the topic of sex, intimacy, sexuality. And as we continue and resume here in Proverbs chapter 5, we not only come to the fifth chapter, but this is now the eighth appeal from the wise father, the wise sage, to his son or his sons, calling him to walk the path of wisdom. And the message through this chapter on intimacy, sexuality, and sex, in the words of one pastor, Dane Ortland, is this. Sexual folly destroys, sexual wisdom satisfies, and yet life in Jesus Christ, life with Christ, is better than the best and purest sex and pleasure this world could ever offer. Sexual folly, sexual folly destroys, sexual wisdom satisfies, but life in Christ is better than any pleasure that could be offered in this world. So Proverbs chapter 5, in its entirety, verses 1 through 23, listen now to God's word. The father to his son. My son, be attentive to my wisdom. Incline your ear to my understanding, uh, that you may keep discretion, and your lips may guard knowledge. For the lips of a forbidden woman drip honey, and her speech is smoother than oil. But in the end, she is bitter as wormwood, sharp as a two-edged sword. Her feet go down to death. Her steps follow the path to Sheol, the place of the dead. She does not ponder the path of life. Her ways wander, and she does not know it. And now, O sons, listen to me. Do not depart from the words of my mouth. Keep your way far from her. Do not go near the door of her house, lest you give your honor to others, and in your years to the merciless, lest strangers take their fill of your strength, and your labors go to the house of a foreigner, and then at the end of your life you groan when your flesh and body are consumed, and you say, how I hated discipline, and my heart despised reproof. I didn't listen to the voice of my teachers or incline my ear to my instructors, and now I'm at the brink of utter ruin in the assembled congregation. Rather, son, drink water from your own cistern, flowing water from your own well. Should your springs be scattered abroad, streams of water in the streets, let them be for yourself alone and not for strangers with you. Let your fountain be blessed and rejoice in the wife of your youth. 
a lovely deer, a graceful doe. Let her breasts fill you at all times with delight. Be intoxicated always in her love. Why should you be intoxicated, my son, with a forbidden woman and embrace the bosom of an adulteress? For a man's ways are before the eyes of the Lord, and he ponders all his paths. The iniquities of the wicked ensnare him, and he is held fast in the cords of his sin. He dies for lack of discipline, and because of his great folly, he is led astray. Here in the opening six verses of this chapter, uh, the first thing that this wise father uh, and wise sage is saying to his son essentially is, Son, we need to have a talk. Let's talk. Verse 1, be attentive to my wisdom. That is, my son, let us talk about an area of life that God has created, that God has designed. Intimacy. Sexuality. However, an area which can go terribly wrong through foolishness, but can also go wonderfully right through wisdom. So these opening verses are a warning. You can sense the strong language beginning in verse 2. Keep discretion, guard knowledge. For the lips of a forbidden woman drip honey. Her speech is smoother than oil, but in the end she is bitter as wormwood, sharp as a two-edged sword. Her feet go down uh, to death. We might I wonder why such the strong language here about the forbidden woman. What about men? But if you recall, he has been as equally strong toward men who are and have evil intent back in chapter 1 where the men are saying and enticing the son, come, come, let us go lie in wait for blood. Here is the focus upon the forbidden woman. She was introduced back in chapter 2, verse 16. That is this unchaste woman seeking to entice a man to commit adultery. And the language is strong, the message is clear, that when one is addressing, when we are addressing issues of sexuality and intimacy, one is dealing not just with matters that are sweet and bitter, but matters of life and death. Serious matters. It says her feet go down to death. One author put it this way. This wise father is saying to his son, you're going to be tempted. You're walking into a world of sexual foolishness. It will be offered to you as honey and you will be attracted, but this honey will poison you. You notice the word from verse 3 and 4. In 3, honey is mentioned regarding her speech. The forbidden, unchaste, sinful woman speaks with With the word, in verse 4, bitter. In the end, it is bitter. In other words, honey is sweet. But if the aftertaste is bitter, then you know it's not honey. He's saying, don't be fooled. Don't judge by immediate appearances. Her words may ooze charm. That may come in the form of something face-to-face with a person. It may come in the form of The internet may come in the form of a text message, but that sweetness will turn to bitterness, he's saying. Now, we might wonder, well, how does the father know what is forbidden? Who is he? How does he know what's sweet, what's bitter? 
How does he know what is good and what is right sexually and intimately? Well, I would suggest he knows because what he is saying is based upon God's original creation design. In other words, this whole chapter of Proverbs 5 could and perhaps should be read and considered in light of God's original blueprint for man and woman from Genesis chapter 1 and 2. That's the perspective from which he's coming. And so we go back to Genesis chapter 1, verse 27, and we read that God created them, male and female, in his image. God created male. God created female. Which means God designed the man. He designed the woman with their emotion, with their psychology, with their biology and all of their parts, including their sexuality. They are God-given. They are designed by him. Furthermore, God then called the man and woman in Genesis, Adam and Eve, into a relationship, marriage. There in the opening verses and chapters of the Bible, marriage where intimacy could be had and enjoyed. He said in chapter 2, verse 24, Therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother, hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. A oneness which is consummated in sexual intimacy. So God is the one who created intimacy and sex. God is the one who created pleasure. He is the one who thought this up. And we know how intimacy can go terribly wrong or wonderfully right because of God's original blueprint. And Proverbs 5 should be read in light of it. And I think perhaps uh, important and practically helpful here is to see the Father's wisdom and his warning of falling into a particular temptation, that of this forbidden woman, in light of the Bible's larger context of Various temptations, including sexual temptations and sins. Jesus speaks about lust in his Sermon on the Mount in Matthew 5. That would certainly include pornography. The sin of homosexuality in Romans 1 and 1 Timothy 1. The sin of adultery in Matthew 19. That of sexual immorality or fornication, sexual activity outside of marriage in 1 Corinthians 6. Numerous are the paths, potential paths of sexual sin. And I mention these because I know, and I'm sure many of us know, as a statistical fact, that many people, including many of us, have tasted the bitterness of some or more than one of these paths. We live with a sinful heart. We live in a sinful world, including sexually. Sin touches every part of our lives and world. One biblical counselor shared these words and statistics that about 85% of all men, not just the church, we're talking about the culture at large, 85% of all men engage in premarital sex. After marrying, about 25% of men and 15% of women commit adultery at some point. 
and that about half of men and a third of women view pornography at least monthly. All of this, and much more could be mentioned, has revealed the tidal wave of destruction and pain that is slamming our society and, indeed, the church. On top of all that, we certainly today live surrounded by a society that is sexually confused and, I would add, unhinged. This is captured well by Carl Truman, a history professor at Grove City College, in his most recent book, The Rise and Triumph of the Modern Self. Truman says this, Today, while sex may be presented as little more than a recreational activity, sexuality is presented as that which lies at the very heart of what it means to be an authentic person. He says this is a profound claim that is arguably unprecedented in history. That is, at the same time that our culture is very loose in its sexual behavior, We are now living at a time where sexuality, for some, has become the defining characteristic of their human identity. That is a confusing time. And through this cultural mire, the wise father says to his son, here is what you need to know. God has given to us sex and sexuality. Yes, for procreation, but also to focus and to free our romantic joy, our romantic passion, to focus and to free that romantic joy. Passion and intimacy is to have both a form and a freedom. In that way, it's kind of like a fire in your home. When the fire is burning in the fireplace, it is good. It keeps us warm. But if the fire gets outside the fireplace, it can burn your house down. That fire can get very, very hot, but it is to be in the fireplace. And that's part of what the father is telling the son. The consequences of the fire getting outside the fireplace in verses 7 through 14. The pain, uh, the damage experienced by allowing that fire to rage outside of God's design. So he says in 7 through 14, Don't depart from my words. Keep your way far from her. Don't go near her house, lest you give away your honor, your years given to the merciless, your strength sapped, your labors taken. And then at the end of your life, you groan, and you even say, I hated discipline. I'm at the brink of ruin before the congregation. He mentions these things, honor, years, strength, integrity, given over to others, it leads ultimately to regret, even shame. That's what's being expressed here. Uh, This could be any one of us. Past sins and brokenness, leaving us with a sense of shame. Or it's a present struggle with sin that continues to weigh heavily Upon us, and of which we are wearied from throwing it off. If it is us, we are not alone. We see many figures uh, through the scriptures fall into temptation and great struggle. We think of King David, 
person the Bible describes as a man with a heart after God in 1 Samuel 13. And yet a godly man who not only committed adultery, but then sought to cover it up. David had a great fall. But David knew there was hope beyond his own sin. That his own fall would not have the final word. That that God has the prerogative and the right to forgive and the ability to restore and lift the weight of shame. And so David prayed in Psalm 51, that prayer of confession, that psalm of confession, in response to his uh, adultery. Cleanse me, Lord, and I will be clean. Wash me, I'll be whiter than snow. Let me hear joy and gladness. Create in me a clean heart, O God. Renew me. The sacrifices of God, they're a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart, O God, you will not despise. The ultimate remedy to our sin and shame is not merely a greater resolve to have a greater moral life. David knew it was in the Lord, in His grace, His forgiveness and His ability to cleanse and restore a person. You may have noticed this in your own life, that the nature of sin will tend toward shame. A sense of, there's something wrong with me. And then shame, by nature, has the tendency to move us toward concealment. That's what sin does. There's something wrong with me, it will lead me to hide myself from God and from others. That's why sin, by nature, is antisocial. It shrinks us down to the size of our faith, which is oftentimes small. This is what Adam and Eve did in their fall. They hid themselves from the presence of the Lord. It's, at, it's what's at, uh, what is at play in Psalm 32, another psalm of David. Blessed is the one whose sin is forgiven... And he said, for when I kept silent, my bones wasted away, my strength dried up. But then I acknowledged my sin to you, Lord. I didn't cover my iniquity. I said, I will confess, and you forgave my iniquity. You, Lord, are a hiding place for me, and you surround me with shouts of deliverance. David knew where to go. The Lord knows our weakness. He knows our sin. And yet he is a hiding place, a safe refuge. Some of us may be carrying a very heavy weight, a burden of past sin or present sin or shame. And the Lord does not want us to measure or define our lives by our sin, but by his amazing grace. And there is no sin too great for the grace of God. I would offer one very practical step in addressing sin in our own lives, and that is by making it known to another, a brother or sister in whom you trust. The Apostle James exhorts us, confess your sins one to another that you may be healed. The counselor Ed Welch gives helpful insight and counsel in saying that you perhaps should make your sin known to others to the extent that that sin persists. Start to widen those who know if it continues to persist. 
Indwelling sin is in part attacked uh, through confession to others. And when it comes to our sexuality, uh, it is a delicate gift of God as the Father is sharing with His Son. And in the wisdom of the Father, He not only says to His Son, keep far from the path that leads to bitterness, but then what does He say? Essentially, drink deeply from the pure well that satisfies. Notice the very expressive language that the Father uses to capture passion and intimacy within the fireplace, within marriage. Verse 15. Drink water from your own cistern, flowing water from your own well. The metaphor of of water here represents sexual or passionate desires. And he's saying, satisfy that thirst through intimacy with your wife, with your husband. What he does not say is, look, there's temptation out there, so you need simply an iron will. Certainly man needs self-control. Women need self-control. He warns of that in verse 23 about a lack of discipline. But part of God's remedy for passionate desire is not to put out that desire, but to direct that desire toward the pure marriage bed. And that's what he means here by your own cistern, your own well. So the fire is to be kept in the fireplace, but it is to burn with great heat. This father not only directs his son's passion, but offers a blessing over uh, the marriage and marriage bed. That's what you have in verse 18. Uh, Let your fountain be blessed. It may even be better translated, may your fountain be blessed. This is a, a pronouncement of blessing in a way. Rejoice in the wife of your youth, a lovely deer, a graceful doe. Let her breasts fill you at all times with delight. Be intoxicated always in her love. This is a passionate picture of a joyously intimate husband and wife. I will say the imagery of a lovely deer and graceful doe may be a bit culturally distant. You might be thinking, deer? I hunt deer. Okay. But as Bruce Waltke put it, he said, the author has in mind a deer's bright black eyes, their graceful limbs, their irresistible silky hair. The image is communicating the beauty and delight that you are to see and have in your wife, in your husband. I might put it this way. I am going to put it this way. The Father is saying, keep your eyes and hands off everyone else and your eyes and hands on your wife, your husband. That's what he's getting at. The language is intensely passionate. Let her breasts fill you at all times. Be intoxicated always in her love. That word intoxicated is translated later in the chapter as being or one who is led astray in verse 23 regarding the foolish person by their folly are led astray. But ironically, the foolish person is led astray into destruction. The wise person into delight and intimate love. It seems to be kind of a lost in love, this intoxication here. And even as the years go by, even as the years go by, she is to be the wife of your youth. She is to be that precious one who gave herself 
to her husband and the husband to her. One of my favorite uh, pictures, it's a small five by seven uh, picture of my grandfather and my grandmother, my dad's parents. It's on their 60th wedding anniversary. They're sitting down for dinner at their home in Indiana where we traveled every few years at the dinner table where we would have Sunday evening uh, supper with extended family. And on the table is a card. You can see it. It says 60th wedding anniversary. And, uh, and my grandpa has a big smile on his face. But the best part of the picture is what they're eating. And uh, you see a bag of food. It's fast food. Burgers are on the plate. It's Burger King. Burger King. Hey, honey, it's our 60th wedding anniversary. Let's get some fast food. But when, but when you're smiling and you've enjoyed 60 years, it's not because of the food that you eat. It's not what's on the plate there. It's who you're eating with. It's who you've walked down this journey of life and faith together with. I want, I'm approaching 20 years. I, I pray and hope that I'll reach that 60th wedding anniversary. Minus the Burger King. Go with Chick-fil-A, probably. But uh, There are many things that can challenge or disrupt intimacy. You may have passed relational brokenness or fear. There may be personal sin, physical ailments, the body changing through age. You may be single. You may be disinterested, and yet, As we hear God's word, we as the people of God are to promote this picture of sexuality and marriage for how significant it is for all of society and for the church of Christ and what it reflects. And to see, and I hope that we recognize who our God is in Jesus Christ and how he has pursued In the story of Scripture, he has pursued a wayward, adulterous people. Throughout the Scriptures, in Hosea 3, Ezekiel 16, and other places, God's people are at times viewed as a spiritually unfaithful spouse. One who has united herself to a a sinful and foreign love. And our heart is drawn away at times. Yet even in our waywardness, even in our sin and brokenness in its various ways, God pursues her. God pursues his people. Most evidently in Christ, Jesus is indeed, we heard earlier, friend, but he's also bridegroom who comes uniting us to himself, cleansing his bride from sin, preparing his church for that final marriage supper. Might we see in marriage a picture of the gospel. Christ's love for his bride and the calling in marriage to love one another as Christ has loved us. So we hear Paul's words as we come to a close in Ephesians 5. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, that he might present the church to himself in splendor without spot or wrinkle 
or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. In the same way, husbands, love your wives. He who loves his wife loves himself. Let each one of you love his wife as himself, and let the wife see that she loves and respects her husband. And all this for the glory of the Lord Jesus Christ. Let's pray together. Lord, how we thank you that your word does not shrink back or shy away from those areas of our lives in which we may feel a particular brokenness or a shame, but you speak with grace and with clarity, Lord, for what you desire, what you intend. And then, Lord, you provide, indeed, the sufficient grace for us to stand, to stand before you as those who have been delivered ultimately from sin, from sin's curse, but becoming a curse for us. And we thank you that, Lord, in the suffering of the Lord Jesus Christ and his shed blood, we as your people have been cleansed, forgiven. And we pray that you, Lord, would motivate and fuel us by the working of your Spirit in us to desire pure and holy lives. Lord, as you continue to grow and mature and sanctify us, may we rest upon your sufficient mercies this day. We pray this through Christ our Lord. Amen.